This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, or by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3, T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. The Rise and Fall of Papacy by Robert Fleming, 1701-1848 edition, as read by Samantha Elosice, Tape 3. Now seeing these two vials are, as it were, one continued, the first running into the second, and the second completing the first, the one giving us an account of the beast's preparations for warring against the saints, and the other showing the event of the whole, there is no need to give you any conjectures about the conclusion of the sixth vial, or the beginning of the last. Only you may observe that the first of these will probably take up most of the time between the year 1848 and the year 2000, because such long messages and intrigues, besides the time spent before in destroying the Turkish, Turkish Empire, and preparations for so universal a war, must needs take up a great many years. Whereas our blessed Lord seems to tell us that, it is, that the destruction of all those his em- enemies will be accomplished speedily, and in a little time in comparison of the other vile. Supposing, then, that the Turkish monarchy should be totally destroyed between 1848 and 1900, we may justly assign seventy or eighty years longer to the end of the sixth seal, and but twenty or thirty at most to the last. Now how great and remarkable this last destruction of the papal antichrist will be, we may guess, by that representation of it in Revelation 14, verse 19 and 20 where it is set forth under the emblem and character of the great winepress of the wrath of God, which can refer to nothing properly but the event of the seventh vial, as I might show at large had I time. Now this winepress is said to be trodden without the city, that is, of Jerusalem, or the church, seeing this is called the city in scripture style, as Rome is called the great city, in Armageddon, Revelation 16, verse 16, which may bear allusion to the Valley of Decision in Joel 3, verse 2, verse 12, and verse 14. However, the greatness of this slaughter appears in this, that the blood is represented to flow in such a current as to reach even the horse's bridles, that is, of the servants of God, employed in this execution. For without doubt this relates to what we have in Revelation 19.14, which I beseech you to compare with this place. For you will find that a large account is given to the fall of Babylon, in chapter 18, 
and of the triumph of the church upon her final victory over this enemy, chapter 19, verse 1, etc. And among other things spoken of relating to the battle and victory obtained at Armageddon, ye have this account of the general and his victorious army, Revelation 19, verse 11, etc. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, and he treaded the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to fight with him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast and the false prophet were taken, and both were cast alive into a lake of, fern, of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And now to return to the representation of this slaughter by the winepress of blood. Revelation 14 verse 20 It is further said of it that it flowed to the height of the horse's bridles for the space or extent of 1600 furlongs so that Armageddon seems to be denoted here in the extent of it as the field of battle which is now turned into the field of blood. Now what place can we imagine to be so properly meant by this as the territory of the Sea of Rome in Italy which as Mr. Joseph Mead, who first made this observation, says, from the city of Rome to the farthermost mouth of the river Po and the marshes of Verona is extended the space of 200 Italian miles, that is exactly 1,600 furlongs, the Italian mile consisting of 8 furlongs. Now the Hebrew word Armageddon, or Harmageddon, may be justly derived from Hebrew word which signifies both a malediction or anathema, and a destruction or slaughter, and, and Hebrew word, or more fully Hebrew word, which, which signifies an army, or their army, so that both the anathemas darted against the saints by the Romanists, and their, arties, and their armies made use of against them, and all which proceeded from Rome papal, may be here alluded to in the expiration of both their ecclesiastical and temporal interest, so that this conjecture upon the name does confirm that other of Mr. Mead, that the Stata della Chiesa, or the territory and possession of Italy belonging to the Sea of Rome, is the place called Armageddon, where the final destruction of anti-Christianism will be. And now, my friends, I have fulfilled my promise to you in giving you not only a resolution of the grand apocalyptical question when the papacy began and when we may suppose it will end, but some considerable improvement of it with respect to the knowledge not only of times past, but that particular period we are now under, together with conjectures, and some of them, I am sure, new and uncommon, about future time by all which I hope I have given the world such a key to unlock all the chambers of the book of the Revelation, as I hope I may venture to say, if considered and used impartially, judiciously, and diligently, will be found to give some new light to us in our mental journey through the mazes and turnings and dark passages thereof. 
And had I not been so confined, as you may see I have been here, I might have cleared a great many other dark things in this prophecy. But seeing I could not neglect this opportunity of presenting these thoughts to the world as a new year and new age's gift at once, I do therefore hope you will the more easily excuse what may seem dark or defective in this discourse, as considering how much I am straitened, not only as to the limits of paper that I must keep to, but of time also. Now seeing I have already given you a theoretical improvement of the question I have presented you with a resolution of, all that remains is to bring you from speculations and notions to practice, that your thoughts may be so seasoned with a serious and deep sense of your duty and interest, that you may get advantage both by the perusal of my preceding apocalyptical meditations and the following discourses, that after ye have considered the duty of improving your time, which together with some other things I am now to treat of, you may, ha you may make application to yourselves of what I have said concerning God's dwelling with men upon the earth, so as ye yourselves may become temples of the living God, seeing God hath promised this privilege to all true Christians, saying, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16 And when you have thus applied to yourselves the first of the following discourses, I hope you will not reckon it lost time to consider what I have said as to the ministerial work, especially the application, as to that part of it at least which does immediately relate to you and all Christians, as well as ministers, that this way you may learn to join in with Christ's ordinances for the future with great seriousness, and in order to further good than perhaps any of us have yet attained to do. And when you have improved this way also by the perusal of the second discourse, let me desire you to read the last concluding one, with serious meditation, in order to see the connection and design of the whole. For though it be short, yet it, can, yet it contains much in little, and may be of use to introduce your minds to some further and more distinct apprehension of our holy religion, as it centers in Jesus Christ. And when you have thus perused and considered both this and the following discourses, I am willing ye think as meanly both of me and them as ye please, upon condition that ye may this way value the Holy Scriptures more. For as my design in all my performances of this kind is to dig my materials from the fruitful and rich mines of this divine, divine depositum and sacred treasure, so I have no other end than to lead you in there also, that ye may be more and more enriched with the saving knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. In order to this, therefore, let me in the second place suggest something here, by way of a practical improvement of what I have said above, especially as to that part of our discourse which I was last upon, relating to the apocalyptical times and periods, with the transactions of the same, in as far as they concern us. And what I have to say here I shall propose by way of observations, which may be of some use, I hope, both to regulate our thoughts and actions while we live in this world in relation to the concerns of the Church of God. The first observation is that it may justly be looked upon as an eminent confirmation of the truth of Christianity 
that so wonderful an account should be given of the transactions of the world so long before they came to pass. The verity of our holy religion is proved from two things, principally, that is, miracles and prophecy. And both these arguments have been excellently improved by learned men. But yet, as the first of these was perhaps the principal and most convincing topic to those that lived in our Savior's days, so I look upon the second to be the most considerable to those that live in after ages. Now we find that Christ himself did not lay the foundation of the belief of his mission on miracles alone, but seemed to build the faith of his disciples chiefly on Old Testament prophecies, as he did to the two disciples going to Emmaus, Luke 24, verse 27, etc. And I suppose it is too plain to need any proof that the apostles did ever insist upon the prophecies of the Old Testament more than, more than either upon Christ's miracles or their own, in order thence to demonstrate that Christ was the Messiah. For the testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19 verse 10, that is, as I understand the words, the spirit of prophecy is the great standing evidence and testimony of the divinity of Christ and of the verity of his word. Therefore, as the angel argues with John, he only is to be worshipped who is truly God and who inspires his servants with the gift of knowing things to come. It has therefore been the work of learned men in all ages to prove that Christ was the true Messiah and consequently that his institution of religion was truly divine by showing how punctually the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled to him. But I am much mistaken if an impartial considerer of the New Testament prophecies may not find some things that do almost as plainly characterize several later events as the ancient prophecies did the former. And of this let what I have said of the sixth and seventh seals and fifth and sixth trumpets and of the slaughter of the witnesses be taken as instances. Or, if this will not be allowed, let it be considered that we see the full completion of the Old Testament prophecies relating to the erection of Christianity whereas we see not the entire fulfilling of the apocalyptical ones. Therefore we must make allowance for the different representation of the one and the other of these. For they only that shall live after the great battle of Armageddon is over can see the exact fulfilling of this prophecy in the destruction of Antichrist, with the same advantage they see also the fulfilling of Daniel's visions with respect to the coming of the Messiah and his death. We therefore now have no more advantage as to time in explaining and understanding this latter event than the Jews had as to the first who lived in the days of the Maccabees while Daniel's weeks of years were running out. And I question if they then did understand the periods of time they were under more clearly, if at all so distinctly, as we do the times that have passed over the Christian church and that part of time we are now under. Therefore I say we have great reason to thank God that so much of this book is already made clear to us as to prove confirming thus far to our faith. For whatever differences have been among the most eminent interpreters of this book as to particular calculations and accommodations of things, yet they have all of them agreed in the main foundations of the interpretation thereof which I have built upon, except Grotius and Hammond, whose hypothesis has had few followers and will have few and will have fewer.
and Dr. Cressener has irrefragably proved in his book entitled A Demonstration of the First Principles of the Protestant Application of the Apocalypse. So that there are two things almost equally strange to me, that the Jews should own the verity of the Old Testament, and particularly of Daniel's prophecy, and not see that the Messiah is come, and that the Papists should believe the divinity of the New Testament, and particularly of the Revelation, and not see that the Church is anti-Christian. But while I admire the willful stupidity of both these parties, I cannot but admire also the wisdom of God in making use of both these in His providence to confirm to us the verity of Christianity, in prophesying both of the one and the other so long before, and in continuing them to this day, as standing monuments of the divinity both of the Old and New Testament. But, but besides this, there is a second observation that may be of great use to us this way also, that this book represents to us as on a small but exact map the steadiness and exactness of providence and Christ's government of the world. For here we see the various and seemingly confused events of providence so exactly methodized as to make up one uniform and noble peace, the seeming discords and jarring sounds of things being so disposed by infinite wisdom as to make up one perfect harmony. Here piety and wickedness, angels and devils, the church and antichrist act various and contrary parts, and yet Christ makes use of all for noble purposes and carries all on for one great end. And now, as in other respects, so in this, we may take notice of the perfection of the Holy Scriptures, that what is wanting in history is made up in prophecy, which, is in, some which in some sense is history also. For if history, in the general notion of it, be an account or relation of the actions of men in the world, prophecy is no less a species of this than that to which the name is most commonly appropriated. For as that is a relation of things past, prophecy is an account of things to come. Now as Daniel makes up the hiatus or defect of the history of the Old Testament, so the revelation of John supplies that of the new by leading us down from Christ's first to his second coming. And here let me observe that these two books give us the exact plan of a divine history which never yet was given the only essay towards something of this kind that I know of, having been given by a near and dear friend of mine. Footnote. My father, in his third part of the fulfilling of Scripture, called Scripture Truth, confirmed and cleared by some eminent appearances of God for his church under the New Testament. End of footnote. For though there have been many ecclesiastical as well as civil histories written, Yet none of these run in the strain of scripture history, where all matters of fact are related not so much in reference to men as in relation to God and his providence in governing the world. A third observation is this, that we may now, after what I have said, attain to a distinct view of what part of this prophecy is past and what remains yet to be fulfilled. Of this I shall say nothing directly at this time, Seeing the preceding scheme I have given of the apocalyptical periods may, I humbly hope, afford you a sufficient thread to regulate and fix your thoughts and meditations in relation to this subject, 
Only I shall hint some things to you that are deducible from what I have already said this way. Therefore, number one, let me advise you not to suffer yourselves to be deluded with the specious or confident pretenses of some men when they go about to impose not only upon themselves but upon the world by their notions relating to the sudden coming of Christ to judge the world or to the speedy destruction of the papacy. I love to expose no man's weaknesses and I perfectly abhor the way that of late is become modish to rip up and publish personal failings and therefore I shall neither trample upon the grave of the dead nor affront the living as remembering that we all do that we do all know in part and prophesy in part only. But without detracting from others, I do in faithfulness and love desire that ye may not suffer yourselves to be imposed upon by, may, by a vain imagination that the end of things is so near as some, both of old and of late, have pretended to foresee. For from the scheme I have given you, ye may easily see that there are many and great events to fall out before the final fall of anti-Christianism, and more before the consummation of all things. And two, as I would not have you to suffer your hope to carry you too far, so neither your fear. For as the warm imagination of some men has represented to them the fall of Antichrist, and the day of judgment so near that these must happen in their times, so the melancholy and fear of others has so far wrought upon them that they have fancied the great slaughter of the witnesses is yet to come. And of both these sorts of men, this observation will be found to be generally true, that those over whose reason, fancy, and imagination have the ascendant, whether it be an airy or sprightly, or a dull and melancholy one, have still limited great events to their own time, and most commonly to a very few years. But I am much mistaken if I have not proved that the universal slaughter of the witnesses is already past, though at the same time I do readily grant that there is just ground to fear that we are near some very trying judgments of some years' continuance. But I have said enough of this above, and therefore shall add no more here. But third, seeing I have touched but slightly upon the millennium, or the thousand years' reign of the saints on earth, I shall desire you to think a little further on this as the greatest event that is to happen before the end of the world. I dare not indeed expatiate upon this vast subject, only I shall suggest a few things concerning it. First, the first is that this is to begin immediately after the total, total and final destruction of Rome Papal, in or about the year 2000, and that therefore Christ himself will have the honor of destroying that formidable enemy by a new and remarkable appearance of himself, as I said above. But second, we must not imagine that this appearance of Christ will be a personal one, no more than his appearance in the destruction of Jews by Vespasian and Titus was such. For the heavens must retain him until the great and last day of the consummation or restitution of all things. Acts 3 verse 21 Third, Yet we must have a care of confounding this millenary peaceful state of the church with the day of judgment, seeing nothing is more plainly distinguished than these are in the twentieth chapter of the Revelation, where it is told us that after the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be again let loose, and men shall apostatize almost universally from Christ 
and make war against the saints, and that after the destruction of those enemies the day of judgment shall commence. And therefore, forth, we are not to imagine that the millenary reign of the saints shall be free from all mixture of hypocrisy and wicked men, or from sin and trouble, seeing the sudden and general apostasy that follows that period is a demonstration that all were not Israel that feigned themselves to be of it, and wanted therefore only an opportunity to shake off the church's yoke. Nay, the expiration of that period shows that long peace and prosperity must have corrupted the church itself, else it cannot be conceived to be consistent with the equity and goodness of God to suffer her enemies to go so near to the total extirpation of his own professing people. These things I have hinted thus because I have no time or room to insist upon them as the subject does require, but I do the more readily pass them now because a late learned author, Dr. Withy's treatment of the millennium added to his paraphrase and comment on the epistles, has materially considered them, at least the three last of them, wherein he has very much confirmed my apocalyptical thoughts which several years ago I had entertained upon this head. And the same author, in his treatise on the Millennium, and on the eleventh chapter of the Romans, and in the appendix to the same, has prevented my inquiry concerning the call of the Jews, and their national conversion to Christianity. For as I took notice before, I could never fall in with the strained interpretation of of Revelation 16 verse 12, as if by the kings of the East the Jews were to be understood, and that consequently their full conversion was to be under the sixth vial. Therefore, after various thoughts upon this head, being satisfied that the Jews were to be converted, and that this great event could not be wholly left out in the revelation, I did at last conclude that this must not be, whatever particular conversions of some part of them might happen, until the final destruction of the Popish party, whose idolatry, villainies, lies, and legends, and bloody temper is the chief thing that prejudices them against Christianity, so that I did at length conclude that the resurrection or revival of the ancient Jewish church is understood by the resurrection of the martyrs, Revelation 20 verse 4, who being thus added to the true Reformed Church, and making up one body together with those Gentile believers, in the fullness or ripened state of the Gentile Church, shall be to them as life from the dead, Romans 11 verse 15 to 25. One notion only I crave leave to add to those of the above-cited author on these heads, that is, that I look upon the millenary state to be the most eminent and illustrious time of the Christocracy. I hope none will reject the word, though it be new, seeing it is so expressive of the thing. Wherein Christ will revive, but in a more spiritual and excellent way, the ancient theocracy of the Jews. For as under Moses, the judges and kings of Judah, God acted as king of the Jews, or Christ rather, in a more peculiar and immediate sense, as I may perhaps have an occasion afterwards to prove to the world, so I do expect that after God has delivered his Christian church from spiritual Egypt and destroyed his enemies in the Red Sea of their own blood, he will once more exert his power and authority, and our blessed Redeemer will reign as the king of his people, not indeed in such a pompous way as among the Jews of old, 
for John saw no temple in the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, verse 22, but in a way adapted to the New Testament dispensation and more immediately preparative unto and typical of the state of glory in heaven after the day of judgment is over. And now that I am upon this great prophetical event, I cannot forbear to give you a new conjecture upon the last numbers of Daniel. For his seventy weeks of years, in Daniel 9 verse 24, are already remarkably elapsed in the incarnation and death of our Redeemer. And the number of two thousand days, in Daniel 8, are plainly to be interpreted as of the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, profanation of the sanctuary. For as it is restricted to that short period, as is plain to any that will attentively consider the words themselves, see Daniel 8, verse 9 through 14, especially if compared with verses 21 through 26. So the Spirit of God, by designing this period by the title of Greek word, or a period of evening mornings, that is, natural days, does plainly assure us that we are not to interpret these days prophetically for years, as we are allowed to do with the seventy weeks and other numbers. To return, therefore, to the last numbers of Daniel, there are two distinct periods of time as I take them to be, though all other interpreters go another way, to be found in his twelfth chapter. The first is of a time, times, and a half, or three years and a half, Daniel 11, verse 7, that is, 1290 prophetical days or years, as Daniel himself has explained, has it explained to him in verse 11. This, therefore, is the same period of time that John borrows from Daniel and accommodates to the duration of Rome papal, excepting that there is a difference of 30 days or years. Only that era of this period in Daniel is vastly different from that of John, for as to the latter, we have seen it already, but as to the former, Daniel fixes it at the scattering of the holy people or the Jewish nation, Daniel 11 verse 7, and at the taking away of the daily sacrifice and the setting up of the abomination that maketh desolate, Daniel 11 verse 11. Now our Savior, who was certainly the best expositor of his own word, explains that this abomination that maketh desolate and which was to pollute and ruin the sanctuary, to be nothing else but the idolatrous and desolating Roman army, as we see by comparing Matthew 24:15 with Luke 21, verse 20 and 21. The epoch therefore of the time, times and a half in Daniel, or his 1290 years, must be the year 70 from the birth of our Savior, when Jerusalem was taken, if we should consider the beginning of the setting up of the abomination that maketh desolate. But seeing the era of this number is not the beginning of the conquest of the Jews, but the complete scattering of that nation, or the accomplishing the scattering of the power of the holy people, as the words are, Daniel 11 verse 7, and the full setting up of the abomination that maketh desolate, verse 11, which was not done until Hadrian's time, who fully conquered the Jews and built a city near the ruins of Jerusalem, which he called Aelia, building at the same time a temple to Jupiter on the ground where the temple had stood, and engraving over the gate of this new city the figure of a swine in derision of the Jews, 
Now this work was finished in or about the year 135, from whence the period of 1290 years leads us down to A.D. 1425, which in prophetical reckoning is the year 1407, about which time the papal power was at its utmost elevation. For after this time the Hussites, Albigenses, Wycliffites, Waldenses, Picards, etc., began to fall before the Romanists until they were in a matter, manner totally extirpated before another century had well nigh run out. Now this dismal period expires about this time, and then there follows the second period of 1335 days or years, Daniel 11 verse 12, which being calculated from the year 1407 terminates in 2742 A.D., that is, 2722 of prophetical reckoning, which therefore includes the begun downfall of the papacy under the seven vials and the final accomplishment thereof afterwards, together with the greatest part of the millennium and consequently the great conversion of the Jewish nation during that period. And perhaps the begun apostasy of Jewish and Gentile Christians, which is to issue in a universal war against the saints, upon the expiration of the millennium, may begin about that year 2722. And now that I have come again upon prophetical numbers, I shall venture to digress a little more still, in giving you some further illustrations of these two periods from the 14th chapter of the Revelation, of which take these few hints at this time. In the first place, then, you have a description of Christ's followers adhering to him during the reign and rage of Antichrist, from Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 through 5 inclusive, which must therefore reach down from the year 606, or 758 rather, to the year 1517, after which we have the begun revival of the Church of Christ represented, in the second place, by the testimonies of the three angels succeeding one another. The first angel has a commission to preach the gospel purely to all nations, Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, which must therefore begin with the preaching of Zwinglius and Luther, and does include, I humbly suppose, the periods of the first four vials. The second angel follows, Revelation 14, verse 8, and proclaims the fall of Babylon, or the papacy, and must therefore be synchronical with the fifth vial being poured out upon the seat of the beast. The third angel gives men warning that they should not join with the beast, and denounceth severe judgments against them that shall be found to do so. Revelation 14 verse 10 etc. Which therefore relates to the last part of the time of the sixth vial, when the unclean spirits go forth to insinuate into the nations in order to engage them to make war against the saints. Revelation 16, verse 13 through 16. Now, after all these things, we have in the third place a typical or emblematical account of the deliverance of the church and of the destruction of the bloody persecution, persecuting anti-Christian party. Therefore, we have first the emblem of an harvest which seems immediately to relate to Christ gathering his church into a happy state, Revelation 14, verse 14 through 16. And then second, we have the representation of the final destruction of the Popish party under the emblem of a vintage, wherein the bloody clusters of the several Popish fraternities 
and communities are to be bruised and squeezed to death in the winepress of God's wrath. Verses 17 through 20. But I have spoken already to this great period of time above, which issues in the blessed millennium, and therefore I shall say no more to it at this time. Only there is one thing that falls in my way here which ought not be passed over in silence, and that is, to what period we are to refer the happy state of the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, and of the blessed river and tree of life, Revelation 22. For I find interpreters at a mighty loss this way, whether these relate to the millennium or heaven itself after the day of judgment is past. And indeed, there are some things that seem inconsistent with either of these states. For what is said of the nations flocking into this new state and walking in the light of it, and of the kings of the earth that they shall bring in their glory and honor to the church, Revelation 21, verse 24 through 26, seems not to agree with the notion the scripture gives us of the state of the glorified in the higher heaven after the resurrection, but does exactly suit with the peaceful reign of the saints, when Jerusalem, or the church, shall be exalted above the nations who shall all run into her. And yet, upon the other hand, there are things also that seem to be too great even for the blessed millennium, as we have given the notion of it above. Such is the account of the perfection of this state, that it will be exempted from all death, sorrow, crying, and pain. Revelation 21 verse 4 And yet, as the former expressions may be adapted to the state of the church triumphant in heaven, in a spiritual sense, so these last expressions may be made to suit also with the state of the church on earth during the millennium, in a comparative sense. That is, if considered with respect to the preceding afflicted condition of Christians. Therefore, seeing this last glorious scene of affairs may be interpreted in relation either to the one or other of these periods, I conclude that we ought to interpret it of both, that is, of the millennium in a first sense, and of the future glory of the church in heaven in a second and complete sense. For as I observed above, that the sacred prophecies, particularly that in the 24th chapter of Matthew, and second chapter of the second epistle to the Thessalonians, are to be interpreted both in a first and second or ultimate sense, so I do, I do believe we must of necessity understand the account of the new heavens and new earth and of the heavenly Jerusalem in this book, and if this be once supposed, then it will be easy to adjust the seemingly different figures used by the Holy Spirit in this place, seeing the whole is so contrived that it may correspond both with the millenary state and the future state of glory that is, to the first as an emblem and type of the latter. So that as the destruction of the Jewish nation and church is given in such words, Matthew 24, as to become this way an emblem of the final destruction of the world, so likewise is the millennium so painted and described, Revelation 21, as to be designedly given as a type of the state of the church triumphant in heaven after the day of judgment is over. A fourth observation from what I said before is this, that our reformers did not rashly, but upon just grounds, desert the Church of Rome as anti-Christian and apostatical. For not, for not to insist upon pr- prophetical indications of the Roman Church being indeed the Antichrist, there are four things that lay a just foundation for all honest men's leaving that interest, 
that is, first, gross errors, such as purgatory, human merits, and works of supererogation, indulgences, transubstantiation, etc. Second, horrid idolatry in worshipping angels, saints, canonized persons, together with images, statues, crucifixes, and consecrated wafer. Third, the pretended infallibility of the Roman See in imposing upon men's consciences what they please and debarring us from reading the scriptures ourselves or making use of our own reason in matters of religion. And fourth, the dreadful tyranny of that party, seen and felt both in their inhuman cruelties, persecutions, massacres, and diabolical barbarities used against all those that differ from them. For the proof of all things, all which things, let Camieras be consulted together with a Latin title. And besides innumerable others, still includes late pieces against the Romanists, for my time allows me not now to enlarge upon any of these heads. Only that I may not leave you without some specimen of popery, I shall copy out in English the twelve articles of the Romish faith, additional to the twelve Christian ones, which are contained in the Apostles' Creed, as to the sum and substance of them. These twelve additional articles are contained in the famous bull of Pope Pius IV, dated at Rome in the year 1564, in the Ides of November and the fifth year of his pontificate, which is to be found at the end of the printed canons and decrees of the Council of Trent, where after an enumeration of the primitive articles, beginning with Credo in Unum Deum, etc., I believe in one God, etc., he proceeds to charge all men that would be saved to own and swear unto the following articles, also anathematizing all that do not so. These being thus, Apostolicus et Ecclesiasticus Traditiones, etc., which take in English thus, 1. I do also, that is, together with the articles of the Apostles' Creed, most firmly admit and embrace the apostolical and ecclesiastical traditions and all other observations and constitutions of the same, that is, the Romish, Church. Second, I do admit the sacred scriptures in the same sense that the whole, that Holy Mother Church doth, whose business it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of them, which I will receive and interpret according to the unanimous consent of the fathers. I do profess and believe that there are seven sacraments of the new law, truly and properly so called, instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord, and necessary to the salvation of mankind, though not all of them to every person. These are baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, orders, and marriage, which do all of them confer grace. And I do believe that of these, baptism, confirmation, and orders may not be repeated without sacrilege. I do also receive and admit the received and approved rites of the Catholic, that is Roman, Church in her solemn administration of the above said sacraments. Fourth, I do receive all and everything that hath been defined and declared by the Holy Council of Trent concerning original sin and justification. 
Fifth, I do profess that in the Mass there is offered to God a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice for the quick and the dead, and that in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist there is truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that there is a conversion made of the whole substance of the bread into the body, and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood, which conversion the Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. Six, I confess that under one kind only, whole and entire Christ, and a true sacrament, a true sacrament is taken and received. Seven, I do firmly believe that there is a purgatory, and that the souls kept prisoners there do receive help by the suffrages of the faithful. Eighth, I do likewise believe that the saints reigning with Christ are to be worshipped and prayed unto, and that they do offer prayers unto God for us, and that their relics are to be had in veneration. Ninth, I do most firmly assert that the images of Christ, of the Blessed Virgin, the Mother of God, and of other saints, ought to be had and retained, and that due honor and veneration ought to be given to them. I do tenth. I do affirm that the power of indulgences was left by Christ in the church, and that the use of them is very beneficial to the Christian people. Eleven. I do acknowledge the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Roman Church to be the mother and mistress of all churches, and I do promise and swear true obedience to the Bishop of Rome, the successor of St. Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, and Vicar of Jesus Christ. Twelve, I do undoubtedly receive and profess all other things which have been delivered, defined, and declared by the sacred canons and ecumenical councils, and especially by the Holy Synod of Trent, and all things contrary thereunto, and all heresies condemned, rejected, and anathematized by the Church. I do likewise condemn, reject, and anathematize. Lo here, my friends, you have a fair prospect of popery, without any misrepresentation or so much as comment. For these are the words of the creed itself, which all papists are obliged to believe and profess in order to salvation, and which all those who enter into religious orders do solemnly, solemnly swear unto. And therefore it is plain that these things are not looked upon by the Church of Rome as disputable opinions, but as necessary articles of faith. And therefore let the author of the case of the Regale and Pontificate see how he can make good the last concluding words of his book, which are these. The faith of the Roman and Reformed Church doth agree, or is the same, etc. For if these things be so slight and trivial to him that he can, as the Popish Gallican Church doth, swallow and digest all, excepting the eleventh article, he must pardon others, if they continue in the faith of the Reformed Church as that which is opposite to the Roman Creed in so many momentous particulars. Nay, let me add one thing further here as a necessary consectory or inference from what I have said in relation to this consideration we are still upon, that as our Reformers did justly separate from the Romish Church, so we have just ground also to continue separated from that anti-Christian party, let others, under pretense of a dread of what they call schism, run back into anti-Christian errors and heresies. Let them, if they are so disposed, forsake pure Christianity, 
that they may promote the priest's power and adorn their altars with gold and jewels and let them in order to enslave men's consciences and bodies both sound a retreat to Babylon again. We, I hope, know our duty better than to run the risk of damning our souls by becoming renegades to that bloody and wicked party against whose abominations so many thousands of our ancestors witnessed under racks and torments at the stake in Smithfield and elsewhere. They believed that what they did and suffered was in obedience to the call of God, saying, Come out from the apostate Romish church, my people, that ye be not, be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Revelation 18, verse 4 and 5. And God forbid that any temptation should bring any of us back again to that sink of all impurities and errors after we have enjoyed the sunshine of the gospel in its purity and power so long. Therefore, seeing we know what interest we are to keep to, let us be faithful to it by doing all we can for its security, establishment, and honor. And if God call us to suffer for it, let us act as the former heroes of the Reformation have done before us that Christ may be glorified and the church edified by us, whether it be by doing or suffering, by life or by death. The fifth and last observation that I shall propose to your thoughts, as the conclusion of all I have said, is this, that though we are not to live to see the great and final destruction of the papacy, the blessed millennium, or Christ's last coming to judge the world, yet seeing death is the equivalent of all these to us, if we be so happy as to get into paradise, we ought therefore accordingly to spend and improve our time, that we we may partake of the future glory when we go hence. I say, death is the equivalent of all these things to us, if we be so happy as to get into paradise, for then we shall get the conquest over all anti-Christian enemies, and be with Christ in a better state than any earthly millennium can be supposed to be waiting until he come to judge the world, and till we appear also with him in glory, having reassumed our then glorious bodies. Improve your time, therefore, and all the opportunities and advantages of it with your utmost diligence and seriousness, as remembering that ye are dying and accountable creatures, and that your time is given you for this very end, that ye may prepare for a better world. And now that we see the beginning not only of a new year but of a new age, I must give a further vent to my zeal and concern for your soul's good upon this great and practical head, that is, the improvement of time with respect to the upper world, that when I am gone I may, by what I have said and am about to say, continue to speak still to those who shall survive me, and even, if this discourse lasts so long, to succeeding generations also. And I suppose you will the more readily bear with me in this when you remember with what unanimity and importunity you desired me to print a sermon on this head which I preached on New Year's Day 1699 from Psalm 90 verse 12. For seeing I was prevented in yielding to your desire, then I shall lay hold on this opportunity to make amends, in some measure at least, for that seeming neglect by presenting you with some useful hints on this subject. And here, as I begin to speak upon this head, the story of Xerxes comes to my remembrance. 
who when he saw his vast army of a thousand thousand men march by, with whom he expected to have swallowed up the poor Grecians, is reported to have wept upon this spot, that before a hundred years should run out, none of all that multitude would be alive. Little imagining that before the end of that very year he was to see the destruction of almost all of them and draw his last breath himself also. For methinks it is a serious and weighty thing to think that before the end of this century all those that now make a figure in the world will have finished their course and be gathered into heaven or hell, new actors coming up on the stage in their stead. And yet, while I lengthen out my meditation to the end of a century, I find just reason to contract my thoughts and suppose I see both you and all others that crowd our streets a place of worship or fill remoter islands and continents gradually dropping into an eternity, some this year, some the next, and so on. But to proceed to the consideration of the subject in hand, I suppose I need not tell you what we are to understand by the improvement of time, seeing this is too plain to need any explication in a general sense, and neither can it be dark to Christians in a spiritual sense, for it can denote nothing else but such a rational and religious regulation of our time, and disposal of our talents and opportunities, especially as we live under the advantages and means of the gospel, that we may ever be occupied in doing and getting good, so as to find favor in the sight of God, and attain afterwards to the happy enjoyment of Him. Foreseeing, as the Apostle says, now is our accepted time and day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1 and 2, we ought to take heed to ourselves that we receive not the grace of God in vain. We ought to reckon, therefore, that this space of our life is given us, that we may be taken up in promoting the honor of God and our own and other men's good, as being, in all these respects, in a state of trial. Let us, therefore, improve our time by laboring to gain our own assent and consent fully to the terms of the gospel, by studying the word of God more and more, by a close and impartial trial of ourselves, by frequent and fervent prayer, and by an universal and constant obedience to all God's laws and institutions. And let us argue ourselves into this as our duty, by considering how dearly our Lord Jesus has purchased our day of grace and opportunity for salvation, how many have been damned and lost forever by their not improving this talent of time, how dreadful the condemnation of such will be who choose darkness rather than light. How unreasonable it is to be so careful of the body and so regardless of the soul. How strange it is that we should not do that for our eternal advantage which worldlings do for a little temporal gain. And lastly, how uncertain we are of the continuance of our time and season of grace. And seeing, in order to improve time aright, we ought to lay hold of all the special seasons and peculiar opportunities which God puts into our hands for this end. These deserve, these will deserve to be particularly considered by us. But since it is the work of prudence that every man know and observe his own circumstances and providential occurrences, in order to a right improvement of them accordingly, all that I can do here is to hint at some generals this way. Therefore, first, let me advise you to make a right improvement of the circumstances of your outward lot in the world. Are ye in a state of prosperity? 
then be thankful to your gracious benefactor. Are ye honored? Improve this, that God may be honored through you. Are ye in any place of power and authority? Lay yourselves out to advance the kingdom of God among men. Are ye rich? Remember what Solomon says, that wisdom is good with an inheritance. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 11 And therefore serve God with what he gives you. But if, but if you be in adversity, despond not. But remember that as prosperity gives men greater advantages for doing good, adversity affords more seasons usually for getting good. For in the day of adversity we are more ready to think and consider than in the time of prosperity, as Solomon says. For then is the time and season to consider the vanity and uncertainty of the world, to know ourselves better and God more, and to prepare more readily and thoroughly for another world. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14 Second, improve your circumstances in relation to company or retirement with company, labor to gain that by them which ye may in some measure make up your loss of time. If you can get no good from them, then study if possible to do them good by insinuating what may tend to their advantage, and then ye have no reason to reckon your time lost. But if you enjoy the company of good and wise men, it is not to be believed what profit and advantage may be got by mutual discourses to edification where men are communicative and can hear with different apprehensions about things without running into heats and quarrelings. But if we are shut out from company, we may justly look upon solitude and retirement as a happy opportunity of advantage and profit if we do but know how to improve the same by filling up such seasons with study, meditation and prayer. Third, Improve the means and opportunities of grace and salvation. For the end of all that Christ has suffered and done for us is to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify us to himself a people zealous of good works. Titus 2 verse 14 Therefore let us hear the word preached and so join with the prayers of the church and so partake of the ordinances of Christ, particularly that of the Lord's Supper, that we may be a built-up that we may be built up a spiritual house as lively stones concurring to the raising up of such an edifice and that we may become also an holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Jesus Christ acceptable by Jesus Christ to God 1 Peter 2 verse 5 and fourth if at any time or upon any occasion you find the spirit of God to move your thoughts and affections more sensibly than usual as the angel moved the waters of the pool of old, O oh, my friends, neglect not such a fair gale and favorable opportunity, but improve this happy season and strike the iron when hot and malleable, for how dreadful must it be to quench the Holy Spirit and stifle the convictions, motions, and influences thereof, especially such as are sensible and peculiar. But seeing to begin aright is one great mean to carry on anything su- successfully, we ought to set about the improving of our time as early as we can without any delay or procrastination in a matter of this weight and moment. For it is only our present time that we can reckon ours. For as our yesterdays are irrecoverable, so our tomorrows are but maybes and uncertainties. Therefore we are always called to hear God's voice 
today, if we will do it at all. And therefore let us not delay, but make haste to keep God's righteous and holy commandments. Hebrews 4, verse 7, Hebrews 3, verse 7, verse 13, and verse 15. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Luke 19, verse 42, Isaiah 55, verse 6, Job 22, 21, Matthew 5, 25, in Psalm 119, verse 60. Now, if we would improve our time in life to advantage this way, let us be sure not to neglect the morning of time. And here then, let me put you in mind of four mornings of time. The first is the morning of your life, that is, the time of your youth, health, and strength. Such as you have lost this season, such of you as have lost this season in whole or in part, Pray double your diligence in the improvement of what remains of your time. But such of you as are young, be advised to remember your Creator in the days of your youth, and act so as ye may afterwards look back upon your days with satisfaction and pleasure. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Second, the morning of every day is a time to be peculiarly improved for God and your own good. For the doing so has a mighty influence upon us as to the right spending of the rest of the day. It is a season that is not only a friend to study, as the old saying is, but that is favorable to prayer and devotion. For while our minds are fresh and undisturbed with the hurries of company and business, it is certainly the fittest time for duty as well as study. And therefore the saints of old were careful not to neglect this season. Psalm 5 verse 3 Psalm 92, verse 2, Job 1, verse 5, Mark 1, verse 35, Acts 5, verse 21. Third, improve the morning of every week carefully, that is, the Lord's Day. For as we discharge our duty then, we may expect God's blessing through the week more or less. But if we refuse to give God what is His due on His own day, we must not think it strange if God withdraw from us on those days that he has allowed us to serve ourselves upon. And hence it is no wonder if we find that true which many have confessed with sorrow at the hour of death, that the profanation of the Lord's day has been the inlet to all their sins, to all their after sins and miseries both. And fourth, perhaps it may not be unprofitable for us to set apart the morning of every year to review what we have done and what, was, what has happened to us the year past and to beg God's blessings through the year following. It has been the practice of some holy persons to do this, some reckoning the year as it is usual with us in our computations from the first day of January and others reckoning it from the day of their birth or baptism or conversion in all of which everyone may take which way pleaseth him best. And now that we enter upon the morning or beginning of a new century, let me beseech you to begin this work now. If ye have neglected it during the years of the last age which ye have run through, whether these have been more or fewer. Having thus given you an account of time and the opportunities and seasons of it to be improved, I shall proceed to recommend this duty from three considerations and then to direct you how to do it by proposing three rules to be observed this way. In the first place, therefore, let me earnestly recommend this duty to you from three weighty considerations. 
The first consideration is this, that is that it is the duty and wisdom of every one of us to be duly and deeply impressed with the sense of the worth and value of time. I might take occasion here to show you from innumerable examples that the best and wisest men in all ages, both Christians and heathens, have been under the deepest and most constant impressions of the value of time. But as this would be too long for this place, so it is needless to insist upon it, seeing I believe you can as little form an idea of a wise or good man that does not value or improve time as I can. Therefore I suppose it is no need to prove to you the worth and preciousness of time, to you I say who know the uncertainty of it, and yet how much depends upon the improvement and loss of it. But if any of you need any awakening this way, consider how valuable time will appear to a convinced sinner when he lies upon a deathbed, who sees himself dropping into another world, and yet apprehends that his peace is not made with God. Oh, cries the poor wretch, that I had spent less less of my time on the world and my lusts, and more of it in minding the good of my own soul. Oh, that I had those hours and days back again that I spent in taverns and bad company. Oh, for a year, or a month, or a week at least, of health and strength to make my peace with God. And pray, my friends, were ye never sick and under some such thoughts then? Were ye not sensible then of misspent time? Or did you never promise amendment and reformation if God should recover you? Where is now the performance of your vows? Oh, if there be any that forget God and neglect to do as they have promised and resolved, let them consider their duty and interest in time, lest God tear them in pieces that when there is none to deliver them. Alas, my friends, what would those poor wretches give for one day, nay, for one hour, who are now in the infernal prison? What would they give for one offer of a Savior, who are now lamenting the slighting of the gospel, and their misspending their time and opportunities of salvation. Therefore do ye learn to value time more and improve it better before it be too late to retrieve lost opportunities. And this leads me to another consideration. Therefore, the second consideration is that it is our wisdom not only to be impressed with a sense of the worth and value of time, but to be duly and deeply affected and influenced this way so as to set about the improvement of it as our great, greatest and most concerning duty and interest. For it is not speculation but practice that we are to mind here, and therefore if our apprehensions of the worth of time do not influence us to improve it, they will only tend to our greater condemnation. Therefore that which I have said may so affect you as to incite you to do your duty this way, I shall not grudge a little pains in writing further on this head, in hope that ye will not be weary in reading what is written. Take it not amiss, therefore, if I address you with some seriousness and warmth of affection, and through you all others that may cast their eyes upon these sheets. My dear friends, some of you have lived twenty, some thirty, some forty, some fifty, some sixty or more years in the world. Now I beseech you to consider what ye have been doing all this time. Have your performances borne any proportion to the mercies ye have received from God? Have ye been faithful to improve your talents for your God and Savior? Have your convictions brought forth a saving conversion? 
Have your resolutions and promises been all performed? Has it been a matter of conscience to you to serve God with the best of your time, the greatest vigor of your thoughts, the utmost energy of love and delight, and in a word, with all your heart and strength? If ye have been deficient this way, then pray consider not only how impossible it is to bring back any part of the time that is past, but how little, or at least how uncertain the time is that remains to be lived over. And if any be secure this way because they are young or strong or healthful, let them remember how often the old carried the young to the grave, and the weak and sickly see robust and vigorous persons drop off before them. And what is our life at longest? Does not the scripture labor, as it were, under a want of metaphors to describe its vanity when it compares it to a handbreadth, a span, a vapor, the grass that is soon mowed down, the flower that quickly fades, the shadow that declines, and the tale that is told? How poor a thing, then, is it to be able to know otherwise to, no, to know otherwise to number our days and years than by our being born at such a time and having lived to such another time? There is, therefore, no more unreasonable desire in the world than to live long where there is no concern to live well. For this is only to wish to have more time to misspend, to sin longer than others, and to be more miserable in the other world. Besides that, it is impossible, as the course of things is now, to live long in a proper sense. For as the following distich expresses it, quote, To live long, all desire. To live well, none. Yet all may live well, but none can live long. End of quote which was a translation. For is it not for this very end that time is given us, that it may be improved and lived well, in order to our being fitted and prepared for the happy state of a glorious immortality? Surely God did never make so glorious a creature as man, endued with an immortal soul, merely to live the life of a beast, to eat and drink and sleep, or to enjoy his sensitive lusts and pleasures. Think then, my friends, that according as ye improve or misimprove time, ye are now to be happy or miserable for an eternity. For now, for we are now in a state of trial, and upon our behavior, in order to be rewarded or punished afterwards, as we shall be found to have acted when we come to be judged. Therefore we may rejoice now and take our pleasure as we please. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9 But we have reason to rejoice with trembling, Psalm 2, verse 11, when we, when we remember that we are to be called before God and judged for all that we do now. For they that live in the flesh according to their lusts must give an account to him that is to be the judge of the quick and the dead. 1 Peter 4, verse 2 and verse 5. And then every one of them will hear that dreadful word, Take the unprofitable servant and cast him into the outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 30. Consider, therefore, that it is impossible to recall any moment of time that is lost, in a proper and physical sense, and that thus it is a foolish and ridiculous wish. Quote, Oh, if God would give me back the years that are past. End of quote. But yet, in a moral sense, we may be said to bring back past time 
when by doubling our diligence we do in some sort retrieve the misimprovement of former days. But then it must be remembered that this must be done now or never, for if our time comes to an end here, there is no returning to a state of trial again, such as we now enjoy. If a man die, shall he live again? Job 14, verse 14. No, alas, says Job, for as the cloud is consumed and vanisheth away, so he that goeth to the grave shall come up no more, that is, to live on earth again, as the following words explain the meaning. He shall return no more to his house, neither shall his place know him any more. Job 7, verses 9 and 10. Therefore let us all say with him, and improve the thought, When a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. T6L3T5 If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalogue.